0: All right, well, today we are in Dallas, Fort Worth with Baseline Energy Services, and I'm joined by Dan Cook. So, Dan, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thank you for having me. So, just to start off with, um, maybe we'll just go back in time a little bit and just learn more about you. So, how you first got involved
1: in the industry. Sure. Um, Well, I started my career in the rental business with Sunbelt Rentals, and I had some close friends and a family member that worked here, and out of college, I didn't really find a, a really good job that I enjoyed, and so... Um, I still remember the call to this day. I was in Vermont, and my uh, my family member contacted me and said, hey, can you be in Dallas on Monday? And I said, sure, what's going on? And he says, uh, "We have got a job for you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, what do I wear to the interview? And he says, I just need you to be in Dallas by Monday. Can you make that happen? And I said, well, who do I need to send my resume to? And he said, if you don't show up in Dallas on Monday, I'm going to give the job to somebody else. I said, oh, okay. So I packed up my things, and made the very long trek from Vermont down to Dallas over the weekend. Um, I was married, my wife lived in Louisiana at the time. And so I stopped by, washed clothes, and then drove over to Dallas-Fort Worth from Louisiana and started on a Monday morning um, for Sunbelt. And it was quite an exciting um, journey because I had no idea what I was doing. And I think a lot of folks that entered the rental business back in the the early 2000s might say the same. Um, I got a territory in East Dallas And I just talked to anybody that looked like they might rent a piece of equipment. So I was a territory rep um, for probably six years. Um, Sunbelt had done a really good acquisition of nation's rent and I transferred locations. Um, Got a really good territory in downtown Dallas. Built a really strong book of business and had a really good team that could deliver the the fast-paced orders that I needed to get out the door. Um, We did that up until 2010. moved back to Louisiana. I went to LSU, so moved back to Louisiana and was a part of the opening a pump and power branch in Baton Rouge. Um, I did pump rentals there for probably 12 or 15 months and then got promoted to being the branch manager. Um, being from Houston, when a Houston location came around to have a manager need, um, I applied to that and moved to Houston and ran um, one of the larger branches for Sunbelt for a number of years. And then in 2018, kind of on the backside of the Hurricane Harvey response, 2017, um, Sunbelt had executed plans to split the pumps from the power, and I became a regional manager for the Pump Solutions Division. Wow,
0: what a journey. Like, I guess it's great experience working in different cities as well, because I think you you work and, and, and learn from the environment around you. Like, Was there a big difference in each of those locations?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the DFW market and my original Kind of call it landing spot, it was very heavy commercial construction. So you really start to learn about what a commercial contractor needs from the general rental equipment space. Moving over to Baton Rouge, it's a completely different climate um, market space, and I was in a new division, um, and it's a specialty division, so there's a different set of of drivers for the need of the product. It's less commoditized, and it's much more – Strategic in nature, you you don't walk onto a job site as much as you go find a a need for a solution. Um, that same call it um, experience from Baton Rouge amplify it by ten times because Houston's a huge market compared to Baton Rouge. Um, it was a much more mature market for Sunbelt as well. So,
0: hey, Rental Journal podcast listeners, this episode was sponsored by Smart Equip. If you're an equipment owner, you know time is money and equipment uptime is crucial. Did you know your technicians might be spending half their time searching for parts using multiple logins and paper manuals instead of repairing equipment? If your fleet management team is wasting time establishing pricing terms, searching through your ERP system and creating work orders, then your parts procurement process isn't designed for speed or accuracy. Solve this with SmartEquip Procurement. SmartEquip saves time, money, and increases uptime for your equipment. Best of all, with a single login, you can streamline your procurement lifecycle into one easy-to-use solution. SmartEquip Procurement is the leader in parts procurement technology that simplifies finding, sourcing, and buying the right parts and supplies. Enjoy the rest of the podcast and schedule a demo with SmartEquip Procurement to learn how you can increase your fleet's uptime.
1: Um, the the synergy between the general tool division and the pump and power division was much stronger. So we already had a really good customer base and I took that branch from, call it 350,000 a month up to about a million two per month in revenue and it just grew tremendously. And while I was the branch manager, it was an awesome team that was there. Great service technicians, great service leadership, phenomenal sales leadership with the sales guys there. Um, Got to promote a lot of people on that team that are still at Sunbelt today, pretty proud of that. Um, And it really exposed me to a much bigger market where there's just more at stake, Mm -hmm. right? If you screw it up, there's bigger losses that you can have. Um, And then on the backside of Hurricane Harvey in late 2017, when the pump solutions division was being carved out of the pump and power division, um, I covered coast to coast initially, right? I was the first regional manager and working as far east as like Charlotte, North Carolina, in um, Atlanta, Georgia. And we opened Dallas, DFW, we opened Denver. Um, and the first location that I really started from scratch was Bakersfield, California. Yeah. So four time zones, big swath of territory, but you learn how to manage time and you learn how to work effectively remotely.
0: Yeah. and. And so you said when you moved to, to Dallas, like you, you had no idea about the rental industry, like it was a it was a blank canvas basically.
1: It was very much a blank canvas. My first real deal, um, I sold um, a forklift to a customer that builds uh, mini storage, but it was on, it was in a part of Dallas that was very vertical. So instead of being this big open space, it was you know six or eight stories tall. Um, and I sold a forklift, and I had no idea what I was doing. Like you meant to rent it. What are you selling it for? <laughs> well, there's that. Um, but we did want to unload some older sure. assets, right? And the customer said, hey, I want to buy a forklift. So any good sales rep says, okay, let's figure this out. And I, just, I distinctly remember I was like a middleman. Customer would say this. I would take it and go back to somebody that knew more than I did. <laughs> he would say, let's do this. And it was just bouncing it back and forth. And in a week's time, probably, we got the PO, and he cut the check, and we delivered a forklift.
0: Yeah, that's a massive component to anyone that wants to be successful on a sales front around the product knowledge, being able to quickly be able to gather the information and and provide a solution.
1: Yeah, and it's funny you say that because as I matured in that role, um, my approach was very technically based. So um, after the acquisition of Nations Rent and the blending of those two very large organizations, I had a very different territory. I I went from being very rural, um, East Dallas, went 80, 90, 100 miles to the east of DFW to having a postage stamp for a territory. And it's very competitive because it's downtown Dallas. And I learned, maybe I didn't so much as like learn it and then apply it, but I figured out about myself that I could build credibility with the customer through technical understanding. Mm. So one of my approaches was um, when a high-rise was being constructed, I would get understanding of the live loads that each of the floors of the structure could handle and i would submit specs of my scissor lift to get approved to be used now my scissor lift is no different than my competitors scissor lift but mine's approved theirs isn't yeah and so i would position myself well in advance of those orders coming in to have the approved product and it kind of created some some walls around that customer base because it might take 30 or 45 days for the the architect to say yes you can use that scissor lift but mine's already approved Mm. so i did a lot of technical selling on really a commoditized product and it was um, it proved to be a pretty successful tactic
0: i've heard some horror stories of people Uh, getting gear ready and not having the right documentation or whatever it is around the machine Mm -hmm. and it has to sit at the front of the site. It can't go on the job site. And until you get that information, it just sits there. And like, that's like the worst case scenario. It's like, all right, now we've got to manually find this information or even worse, like in Australia, it'll be, we call it mind spec, like Mm mind spec the machine to make sure it's going to be um, suitable for the environment and whatnot. Um, but that's a massive component that the learning of those of those roles and you learned that just through experience or through mentorship mostly?
1: Um, I think I just, I, I stumbled across it as a sales strategy. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that I was around, both my peers at the branch, other branches that worked for Sunbelt and maybe even some of the competitors, um, it was very much a good old boy system. And I'm not from DFW, I'm very, very young at the time, um, so I didn't have that network. So I didn't know any better. I just, I'm comfortable in the technical space. That's why I think I've had a a good successful run in some of these more complicated product lines. Um, So I would spend my time building credibility by solving the problem, not getting to know the customer. And at that point in my career, the market was still very centralized. Very large organizations still allowed foremen and superintendents to place their orders instead of having a procurement department. So the timing was right as well because I spent 90% of my time on a job site, not in an office. Mm. Um, So the the buying decisions were localized and the guys that had real problems to solve, foremen and superintendents, were the ones that placed the orders. And I could bring uh, bring those solutions to them um, from a technical standpoint. Sometimes they don't know what they need. Sometimes they know exactly what they need. Um, But just through good questions, innate curiosity, um, I was able to develop good conversation with them that would lead to orders. And in time, relationships were formed, right? We find common interests. They get to know each other. Um, and it just it worked out very, very well. I don't know that that strategy would work in today's market where buying decisions are brought up to a procurement department and you're um, more focused on submitting a bid versus solving the
0: problem. Mm. And it's also being able to say no. To deals as well knowing what you can and can't deliver because mm-hmm. um, if a customer is saying i need it by a certain date and if you can't actually do it and you're already over promising like that's part of the whole building that
1: trust for sure and there's definitely an element of that um, during that time but i was i was young and i would, had blinders on and that's so i pushed really really hard um, i wouldn't make commitments on something i know i couldn't deliver but i also once i made a commitment did whatever it took to deliver on that. Um, I came through in a lot of ways. I can think of, I wish I could remember the client name, but there was a large project in Dallas, and I got a call on a Sunday morning. Um, The site had been burglarized, and a competitor's equipment had been stolen. They couldn't replace the stolen equipment until Tuesday or Wednesday, and it was a simple welder. So what did I do? I said, I'll get it to you today. Jumped in my truck, um, you know, left home on a Sunday, drove to the yard, loaded the welder by myself, delivered it on a Sunday, And I ended up getting 10 or 12 very large pieces of aerial equipment out that week to that contractor because he removed the competitor from the site. Um, And ultimately, I think I probably had 35 or 40 pieces just to that contractor. And it was a huge success. Um, But I told him I would take care of it, and I did.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes the biggest difference, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. And I say I did. I delivered the first welder. All those manual, all those man lifts and all the uh, the forklifts and other stuff, that just came by way of the natural progression of swapping out the competitor and my team at that time, you know, it was a lot of work and they hustled and they got it done for us.
0: Mm. And then, so what were some of the other roles that you had uh, over that period? So you mentioned branch manager, which I think they call profit center. They do.
1: Yeah. Sunbelt operated what's called profit centers. They don't refer to them as branches. And I was a profit center manager in Baton Rouge. Um, Steep learning curve. Good sellers don't always make good profit center managers. Um, Now, all of a sudden, the the responsibility for the success of the branch and the process is on my plate not just delivering the order um, and then in houston like i said it's 10 times the market that baton rouge is and uh, it was a it's a good experience to figure out what works and what doesn't when i was in baton rouge so when i got over to the much bigger market um, i kind of had a, a I kind of had a vision, if you will, of what would work and where I wanted to go with it. And it was already a a branch that had a good trajectory and a good team. Baton Rouge was a a warm start, so it was Mm. all new in that market. Um, So moving into that Houston role, I had to figure out where I could plug myself in to an already spinning machine. Um, And I just found ways to make everybody's job easier so they could be successful. And that's where I really discovered that my focus is more about people and less about the result or less about the process. My job, and I still believe this to this day, my job is to make my team's job easier. Mm. And if they're successful, it makes me successful.
0: And so then what was your final role at Sunbelt before you finished up?
1: Um was a regional manager within the pump solutions division. And um, when I resigned and left Sunbelt, I think we probably had 15 locations. And I think I opened probably nine, maybe 10 of those. Um, Through that course in time, we hired um, an additional regional manager and kind of split the country east and west, and then through some acquisitions that Sunbelt had made, um, one of them being uh, a Texas-based company, I ended up with just the west coast. And so I had um, had Seattle, Bakersfield, Salt Lake, Denver, Oklahoma City, and Kansas City. And so as Sunbelt was clustering their markets and bringing Pump Solutions into, um, call it their, their tenured clustered market strategy... Um, we just hadn't built out the middle Midwest of the U.S. yet, and so when I left I had those six branches from Seattle to Kansas City
0: mm, that's nice. And so then how did you eventually end up at, at baseline? Um,
1: I was contacted uh, by a headhunter and um, I, You know, I'm maybe a little bit natural skeptic um, And I was kind of interested but at the same time, you know I, I just didn't know that I wanted to pursue any kind of a change and the headhunter was a good sales guy and Um, he positioned and presented the opportunity in a way that kind of resonated with me and so I opted to kind of explore it and one thing led to another over about a maybe an eight-week courtship if you will um, came up here to Fort Worth and I met Graham the CEO and founder of Baseline um, and we did a deal and so I um, provided appropriate notice 30 days and I I left an organization that I spent my 16 years of my first part of my career learning how to operate in the rental space with And
0: so what's your role today?
1: So I started with baseline as the VP of sales, and 45 days later, COVID happened, the market dislocated, and it was pretty scary. Um, And we navigated that pretty well, um, I would say. The interesting thing about our place in the market today is we're not on the frack space, we're not in the drilling space, we're in the production space. So the wells are making oil, they're producing oil. So we are somewhat recession insulated because if they turn those wells off, they're no longer producing revenue. So while we saw our utilization go down a a decent amount, we saw our rates go down pretty dramatically because I I think we all remember oil went negative for a day. Mm. Um, All those conditions have changed and we're definitely uh, excited about what the future holds. Um, But about four months ago, um, as baseline was responding and continuing to evolve with the market, um, Graham and I came to an agreement on uh, doing what I, what he calls, or what we call, VP of Corporate Ops. And that role is anything that is not sales driven or field operations driven falls to me. So I have our maintenance department, I have marketing, I have um, HSE, I have automation, which is a fancy word for our telematics. Um, right. I take care of the physical plant here in Fort Worth. And then just anything that doesn't fit in HR, accounting, Field sales, field ops, it falls to me to, to address and figure out what we need to do to solve problems.
0: And it would be good just to give the listeners a bit of background on the history of baseline energy services as well. So um, obviously the company's probably evolved over those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously you relatively new, but you probably know the history. So it would be great just to share your that piece if you can. Yeah,
1: sure. I'm going to use some notes for that. Um, but it was started by Graham. Um, Graham Radler back in 2011-2012 um, coming, call it out of the Great Recession, the oil and gas temporary power generation was primarily if not exclusively uh, powered by diesel power generation. Um, Graham saw an opportunity to utilize um, what you would call stranded gas. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's an energy source that's found on location and um, In Oklahoma City he started to rent natural gas generators to the oil field um, and use that available energy source and it grew organically over time locations started to come around in West Texas and by locations I mean well sites we got opportunities to rent generators in West Texas South Texas um, in the Rockies um, anywhere that you have a typical oil and gas play Um, Today we serve, we have eight facilities. We serve probably 12 states. Um, We operate a fleet of around 1,000 natural gas generators. Um, We have about 127 megawatts of power that's out on rent. Um, And it's a long-term yet temporary power solution. Um, And we've displaced diesel in this market space. And there's been some other competitors that have done the same to where that power source is fueled by natural gas um, rather than diesel. And that's got some really cool... Um, disruption to that market. It's it's been a pretty exciting ride to be on the kind of the tail end of that transition coming into baseline when I did. Um, but it's it's certainly shifted the the focus from using diesel power generation over to natural mm. gas in that space.
0: And, and was that a slow transition, or was that tomorrow we're going to focus mostly mostly on natural gas?
1: I think it was slow initially because the product line at the time was not call it oil field ready. Um, I'm sure that Graham and the team that originally started this learned a lot of lessons about how to solve the mechanical problems mm-hmm. that occur. Um, you know, the, the wellhead gas is not a, a clean gas source um, in the sense that it's not refined. It's, it's raw coming out of the ground. Um, and so as the, as the technology got proven and people started to realize, I don't have to spend that much money on diesel. I've got fuel already available to me. It comes at a much lower cost. Um, it started to get adopted very rapidly um, I wasn't in oil in the field services in 2014 but I do remember the oil field um, went through a, a downturn right the price per barrel went down it went from maybe a high of140 dollars down to you know the mid30s mid40s let's say um, and through that time, Baseline was able to grow successfully because the adoption of the product and the transition from diesel to natural gas still carried a lot of commercial benefit to mm-hmm. the operator. Um, and then the markets kind of stabilized through 15 and 16, and then 17, 18, and 19 really ramped up. Um, you know, the markets were stable. COVID hadn't occurred yet. Um, we had good domestic policy surrounding oil, um, and Baseline grew very rapidly in that time frame. Um, and so, I think that it started out slow, but once people started to, to see the success of, the, project, of the, the, the product line in the market space, there was a waiting list. Mm-hmm. There were people that would want to tra- make that transition, and they had, to, uh, they had to find the right supplier to be able to help them make that transition. Because the operator has some responsibility, since they're supplying the fuel, they have some responsibility to upfit their locations to accommodate the product. And is there many other rental
0: companies that specialize
1: just in natural gas? Because I know a lot of people have have diesel generators. For sure. It's certainly a much smaller space, and you might say that we have – two other pure play competitors that focus the lion's share, greater than 75 or 80% of their product line and their 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 product offering in the natural gas space. And then there's probably five or six more that offer other products that we don't compete with. Sure. Um, but it's not like the traditional rental space where I came from. Um, and it's not an easy market to break into. Um, it's hard, it's way harder. To keep a natural gas generator running than it is your general rental generator why is that Um, well i'm not a technician so this is maybe my (laughs) armchair um, analysis of why it's harder but um, a gas a gaseous engine not a diesel engine um, it's just harder on the engine the engine itself um, takes a lot more ongoing maintenance you have to run valve lash you have to make sure that all the internal moving components stay within tolerance The fuel consistency is just not there. Diesel is a refined product um, and you can go to any pump and you buy diesel and it's the same basic carbon chain constituent. With natural gas, it can vary not only from location to location, but through the gas stream itself, its Mm -hmm. its fuel content can change. Um, Diesel engines are found everywhere in the U.S. and probably everywhere across the world. Um, so there's a variety of engine manufacturers in the natural gas engine space that we play in. There's a much smaller group of engine OEMs, um, and the engine's not built around um, this application. We're taking a natural gas engine, coupling it to a generator, um, but it's not purpose-built for that. So we upfit it. We we add what we consider. Um, oil field tough components um, and we, we try to convert a standby package um, from the generator manufacturer into an oil field ready package. They're not trailerized until we get them. They don't have any fuel treatment on them until we get them. Um, we have very specific controllers that we install on them so we can parallel generators together. Um, we have different Electrical accessories we offer a no shutdown PM panel so the generator the the power delivery can remain online while we service the generator um, So we do all those things to make it more purpose-built for the oil field um, And it's capital intensive. I mean mm-hmm. any rental business is but you, you can't make money with ten of these You got to have a big fleet and you got to have a broad customer base and you've got to have the the units in reserve so when something does have a fatal failure You can have something to swap it out with. Um, You've got to have a parts inventory. So it's a pretty big commitment to get into this space. Um, And the oil field's a tight-knit community. And when you come in from the outside, if you don't have something new and innovative, you're coming in from the outside. So it's very challenging for somebody to kind of break into that. And when you think about, I would say when you think about the general rental space, um, the, the world is your oyster. You can go and rent anything to anybody we're serving one market with a very high expectation customer. Um, and our products, we don't, we don't push them into other markets, um, like the general rental company can. Mm. So it's a very focused market. And if it's already a full space, there's not room for a whole lot more competition to break into it. And
0: then talking on that customer base side, like, is there specific solutions that you provide as well
1: that you sort of split them out into? So yeah, um, when you look at, where temporary power generation is needed in the oil field, it's it's typically it's on location where there's an electric load, and there you know the oil fields are in pretty remote locations. So we focus on what we call well site rental solutions, and that's as simple as an electric motor could be turning a pump. It could be um, it could be powering an ESP. It could be powering a pump jack, and those are very fundamental applications that we serve. Different facilities, um, like a tank battery, they're gonna have similar electric loads, but the generator's agnostic to what it's powering. As long as it it consumes power, the generator has a home for it. Um, So sometimes we will get into providing backup or standby power. Maybe they have utility power coming into the site, but it's unreliable, and it's pretty critical that those facilities stay online. From a production um, and a safety standpoint, initializing those facilities, um, cost time and money, so if they lose power, they don't want to have to go back out there um, and bring those locations back online. Um, we offer microgrid solutions as well, and a microgrid is going to be a large bank of power generation equipment that gets distributed across, um, call it a field or a very large swath of land, so we centralize the power generation equipment. Um, sometimes the customer will, will step it up to a medium voltage, um, and they'll transmit it out to the remote locations through their own infrastructure. Um, and we also do large power projects, which is very similar. Bank of generators, large power gets produced, um, but it's consumed locally. It's called within the fence line that that location has. Mm.
0: And then, obviously, all these major oil fields and mine sites and whatnot are all... Uh, Very much focusing on the green energy Mm -hmm. space Uh, and you're obviously in a a pretty prime seat for for that. So can you talk a bit more about that side?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple things to mention there. Um, Cryptocurrency, uh, and as of today, we all, if you follow crypto, you know it's taken a pretty big beating right now. Um, But crypto is actually, you might say, is a green initiative. Um, Operators have... um, call it surplus energy with the natural gas, they don't always have the the takeaway capacity to take that natural gas and bring it to market. So they flare it. And flaring has a very bad reputation because it's probably not the best practice, right? Crypto companies um, need affordable power to mine their cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin, whatever the coin is, they consume a lot of power. With our our product line and our, our capacity, we can merge the three of those together the operator and his natural gas fuel, the cryptocurrency miner and his need for power and our ability to bring power to location. So we can reduce the flaring that the operator has to report on. We can provide clean emissions because natural gas is inherently cleaner. That's why you find it in homes, right? You can burn a, um, a water heater or a furnace or um, a cooktop and, and use natural gas and it's the exhaust is safer. Um, and it, it just helps promote The use of an energy source that otherwise would be stranded or the operator can't monetize it so he can't sell it into the market we're bringing a market to him with that partnership with crypto companies and our power generation equipment Um, we also have a lot of inherent ESG pressure on the industry and there's a there's a um, I won't call it a concept but fugitive emissions occur on these locations and a fugitive emission is basically a leak of raw natural gas out into the atmosphere. Um, Mechanically speaking, the pressure coming off the wellhead in that natural gas line is currently used to actuate valves that control automated process on these locations. So when that valve actuates, there's a momentary small release of natural gas. Well we've partnered with a handful of, of oil and gas household name operators to replace those gas actuated systems with air actuated systems and what we're doing is providing natural gas power generation equipment to power electric air compressors to then use that compressed air as the energy source to actuate those valves and eliminate that fugitive okay. methane emission. So it's indirect in a sense because we're not exactly, I would say we're not exactly solving the ESG problem, we're enabling the operator to reduce their reliance on outdated processes to reduce their methane emissions. and. When you look at methane emissions, the standard to measure it against is CO2. That's how greenhouse gases are somewhat um, measured. And so methane will trap somewhere between 26 and 85 times the amount of heat in the atmosphere over the time frame of, say, 20 years. So if we can reduce that methane emissions, we can inherently lower greenhouse gas effects um, by getting rid of those fugitive methane Mm. emissions. Yeah,
0: I can't say there's gonna be that many rental companies that are working <laughs> to, to power cryptocurrencies. It must be a very niche thing that you're you're solving as well, yeah?
1: It is for sure in the natural gas generator space, right? You don't see, you just can't be cost effective if you're gonna power that with um, diesel power generation. There's a lot of crypto mines that tie into the grid and the crypto mining community is very sensitive to the, the cost of their energy. So we spend a lot of our time in the commercial side of those agreements trying to be competitive with grid power, which it's scaled, it's massive, and it's, it's easy, but it's also not reliable. And every minute that they're not mining, they're losing money. You know, we, we offer a, a portable temporary solution that can help control their costs. They're not subject to demand charges, they're not subject to commercial rates of electricity. They get the same monthly invoice from us, you know, month in and month out, so they can predict those costs. And when we do have a mechanical problem, where they're only, they are our only customer. So there's an immediate service response. Um, You know, when you lose power at your house, it might take five or six hours um, to two or three days. With us, we're out there almost instantly, um, and we're responding to that localized outage, not the general outage. They're our primary focus, and they don't get that level of attention from that. How did you get into that space? Like, that seems very, like, unique. Um, I would say that the crypto... The cryptocurrency mining guys, um, a lot of them came to us because they knew that there was some synergy there with the the available gas um, on location, um, and we promoted it very heavily through the marketing department. We would write case studies on what we're doing in that space. Um, we would put up LinkedIn posts about that. That service that we offer, we would go to cryptocurrency conferences and just meet people that were influencers in that space and and share the idea. Um, I won't say we originated the thought. I think that just the market it just kind mm-hmm. of bubbled to the surface, uh, but we took the risk. Right? It's it's a it's an unproven market. It's very very young in its life. It's uh, it's got a lot of inherent risk because we see what's happening in the crypto space. And in time, our customer base evolved from um, very localized very unsophisticated customers that um, were just dipping their toe into it to we work with some very sophisticated organizations that do immersion cooling of their server banks and their crypto mining equipment they have very high expectations of runtime performance Um, so we learned some things along the way and and started to become maybe a little bit more selective of the customer base thankfully the oil and gas market has recovered quite well so it's helped drive rates in the right direction that, that um, increases our, our margin and our profitability in that space. Uh, and that allows us to buy um, the right product line and to upfit our generators and to, to provide the service level that they expect.
0: Mm. That's that's super interesting. And then, so you spoke briefly around the telematics side. So I want to touch on the, the technology piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so where does the IoT and, te- and telematics fit into the, the baseline energy services?
1: Um, so baseline offers... Um, a telematics package and it manifests itself in a couple of ways Um, number one is we have a customer portal that the customer can log into and they can see live monitoring of the generator performance they can see their kw they can see their amps they can see their their frequency that they're running at the oil field operator can go out and pull up his dashboard see the generator performance and go over to his control system and turn it up or down and within a couple of seconds that change is visible. So if he wants to optimize his efficiency of power consumption, he can do that with the data that we provide to the operator. Differently on the internal use case, um, we're able to track all of the engine performance parameters. Uh, and much like you know, vehicles today have the, the service engine soon light or the check engine soon light, all that's driven by the diagnostic trouble codes that exist in the engine. So we are able to then remotely see what's happening at the engine on location. Um, everything from a simple sensor that's operating out of range to the generator has had a mechanical failure and it's shut down Um, so we operate a control room that serves both the internal and the external user on a 24-7 basis and we have different alarm and alert thresholds so what 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 we are able to do is if we have a declining condition on that engine say the the coolant temperature is starting to climb we see that as it's happening live in real time so it may only climb 10 degrees and our control room is able to go in and look at, say, the load percentage. Okay, well, the customer has opted to, to, to drive it from 70% efficient to 90% efficient. They're putting more load on that mm. generator. That makes sense. We're going to watch and monitor that. That, uh, that coolant temperature continues to climb and it hits a low-level alarm. Now we're going to make some phone calls and we're going to file a maintenance card or a repair card and dispatch that out to the field, we need to go check out what's going on because we might have a problem. Um, that that high temperature condition continues to climb, now we know we're going to have a shutdown if it, if it doesn't get under control. So we've already got a technician on the way, he gets out to the location and he can observe the conditions that the generator is operating in and he can see that maybe the radiator is clogged. So he unclogs the radiator, he sprays it out with a pressure washer temperature comes back down and we've solved a problem. We've actually prevented a shutdown from occurring. So we track that and our control room is able to um, document every single incident that occurs on a location and we track what we call LEP and NPT, loss of electric power and non-performing time. And when we can prevent those instances from occurring and causing a shutdown, the customer doesn't even know half the time. Mm so then we can go back to the customer and communicate to them we prevented five shutdowns this month here's what happened here's what we did we're providing you excellent service but what it also allows us to do is equip our technicians with the right parts on their trucks so if we have a battery declining condition right battery voltage is going from 14 down to 13 down to 12 we know we probably need a belt we know we probably need a battery we know we probably need an alternator Um, so the technician can show up on location with the right parts so he doesn't have to turn around and go back to the facility once he's diagnosed it. And so there's an ongoing communication from our control room to our technicians, so they're showing up knowing more of what to expect with the right tools, Mm -hmm. with the right mindset, and with the right understanding of how to solve that problem. In that case, with a, a declining battery condition, I can't solve that while it's running, so we track what's called baseline control downtime, We arrived, the generator's still working and producing power, but now we can call the customer. We can say, hey, Mr. Customer, I'm gonna have to shut this generator down in the next 20 minutes because my my alternator has gone out. Just giving you the heads up, I'm out on location and I'll let you know when I'm done. We control that downtime, we do all the preparatory work that we need to before we shut it down, um, and it's also not shutting down in the middle of the night when nobody is awake. So we're no longer having an unsafe condition to respond to the problem. Mm at night, no idea what's going on. We're doing it in a controlled fashion. Um, and the customers really value that. The customers really appreciate our proactive response to it. And frankly, it's good for us as well, because our technicians are able to plan and know what they have to do going in, and they're not showing up on location blind.
0: Mm. I kind of imagine the, the the turnaround time difference between receiving a phone call to say that the, it's not working, the generator's not working, to preempting doing it like, it must be like days, into, it could be.
1: It certainly could be, and, and if, if it did take days, we wouldn't be on location for very long. <laughs> um, but it, it's, the, it's the ability to, what I call, read the matrix. You have all this data that comes into the control room or through the customer portal or our internal portal, and you can start to associate conditions together. If you see what I call a crowbar in temperature, you threw the belt off the generator. So something related to that water pump not spinning anymore is what causes that. Versus, if you see that slow and steady climb, you know, say over five or six hours, it's probably a radiator that's getting clogged, and maybe it's getting clogged because there's a slight oil leak that's spraying oil onto the inside of the the inside face of that radiator. So you start to read the matrix, um, or you see reality through that digital matrix. Um, And you form conclusions and associate parameters together to have a better understanding and it's all learned from every service call that we do and and once a week we have a review of every single failure that occurs across the operations department so we can learn those things together and be better prepared Mm -hmm. for when those same conditions exist it's quite quite a it's quite a cool process um, when we can predict what's happening we're even able to in some cases tell the customer when they have a problem on their end because we see the load information. So if we have one leg of the three-phase generator that keeps spiking, it could be a problem on our generator, but we can cross-check that against other parameters to isolate it from being our problem. And we can go back to the customer and say, we think you have a dead-to-ground short, would you mind sending your, your electrician out to inspect your side of this while we're checking mm-hmm. out our generator? Yeah, I love that the, the KPIs are moving
0: from uh, not response times to letting you know what we've actually fixed without you even
1: knowing. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny, isn't it? It is. And, and, you know, we don't want to ever walk into a customer and say, look at how good we are we want that to somewhat be an implied message. So we produce a runtime report. And I'm very, very proud of our operations team that we deliver consistently greater than 99.5% runtime based on the number of available hours we could run and the number of of available hours that were down. Um, That's a pretty strong performance metric. And so we produce this report um, and we share our performance with our customer. And if we have a bad month, we measure it over a month. So if we have a bad month, we somewhat go hat in hand and say, we didn't deliver on our commitment to you, and here's why, and here's what we're doing to fix it. And so we're able to deliver um, the data, because in reality, it's all about the communication. Here's what happened. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. Here's what we could have done better as we learned from it. And so going forward, mm. you can expect improvements. It's interesting, like technology is
0: obviously helping solve all these problems. The, the rental companies that aren't willing to adopt because mm-hmm. uh, there's still a lot of companies out there that don't want to put telematics on their machines. <coughs> but like the ones that don't adopt it, you can see they're going to be left behind from a service level eventually.
1: Yeah, you're, you're spot on there, Mark. Um, it's becoming almost expected in the oil field that you have this type of a solution. And there's a lot of solutions out there that communicate that. And so about the time I joined Baseline we had a different system and it basically told us if the generator was on or if the generator was off and it wasn't sophisticated and it didn't give us any insight and it wasn't all it told you was you're about to get a phone call from a really upset customer right and when we go back to the ESG conversation this is one of those very indirect ESG uplifts we used to function In the field by using what we call drive-by pms so once a week once every two weeks a technician ran a milk route and he would go inspect on hand uh, in person and so he had a vehicle on the road wear and tear on the road wear and tear on the vehicle tires get worn out tailpipe emissions it's not very efficient in a lot of different ways now we are able to essentially have that that eye in the sky through the telematics to where we can see those same conditions we would observe in person we can observe them digitally from the control room. So now our technicians are actually able to respond to planned or unplanned maintenance activities on a routine schedule. They're not driving all over the oil patch looking for problems because the control room is who is tracking those problems from the sky or from the cloud. Um, And we're just not wasting the time and the fuel and the energy and the wear and tear going to location unless we absolutely have to and we're not going back and forth to the parts house or to the facility trying to gather up the right parts and pieces. We know with relative certainty what the actual mm. problem is we need to solve when we get there.
0: Mm. And then on the technology piece, uh, is there any other areas that you're focusing on, like solar or any like, new technologies that you're sort of
1: looking at? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky problem to try to solve. Um, when, you, when, you, when you dig deep on that problem really have to understand the load that we're powering. And so I'll I'll try to do some like compare and contrast to set the stage with that. A pump jack, which is found very commonly in the oil field, is a cyclical load. And you've all seen them as you drive around, and it's the teeter-totter that goes up and down, right? When it's drawing up, it's creating a load for the generator. And when it's drawing back down, it's call it free spooling or free spinning. It's not as much load. So that load that the generator goes under looks like a sine wave and a pump jack cycles anywhere from like two to six cycles in a minute so to implement a technology like solar or um, well, let's talk about batteries instead to implement a technology like battery that cyclical load allows that battery time to recharge but that battery becomes a load when it's needing to recharge excuse me And that means that the generator now has to be larger than the base load of the pump jack to have enough power to Mm -hmm. run the pump jack and recharge the battery. If you wanted to look at solar, solar takes up a lot of space. Um, So when you think about, call it a quarter of an acre of space that's needed to have enough solar panel capacity to generate 50 kW, that's a lot of space. 50 kW is a very small load in the oil field. And we all know the sun sets at some point in the day and so what do you do at night when the pump jack still needs to operate you either have to have a battery which may or may not discharge before the sun comes back up and then what do you do if the sun doesn't come uh, back up because of cloud cover the next day so now you potentially have to have a generator solar panels for the day and battery at night Mm. plus you have to integrate all those things they all have to talk to one another to know who has got to take the load at any given point in time based on environmental conditions. So there's automation involved in that. There's a lot of configuration that those three power sources have to be able to work together, and that adds a lot of cost and complexity to the solution that otherwise today is pretty simple. Do I believe and does Baseline believe that battery and solar, for example, have a place in the oil field? They already do. Um, but they're isolated, right? You will see solar panels providing power to um, some type of a sensor on a location, so they, so they have a, a clean power source, but you can't necessarily run the entire facility using just one of those technologies. So the technology has to become more commercially appealing. It has to fit within the, 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 the metric of the, the cost component, um, and it all has to integrate together to be effective. You look at a different type of a load, which would, you know, another common load would be an ESP. It's an electric submersible pump. Um, they take a significant amount of power. They're very high horsepower, which means that they need a lot of KW to power them. And they run pretty flat and consistent, right? Their load doesn't have this swing. Yeah. So a battery is almost ineffective because the battery has to have time to recharge when it's depleted. And frankly, I don't think batteries are really much greener than what we do today when you really dig deep um, and go back into uh, what it takes to put a battery together. It's a very environmentally destructive process to mine the lithium and the precious metals that go into that. Um, So that load that stays pretty flat over time, a battery just doesn't provide much value there. And then when you think about the space being, say, a quarter acre that 50 kW needs, that means I need an acre and a half to have 300 kW. That's a lot of space. Oh, yeah. And so you start to get into things like um, land rights that the operator has to secure with the private landowners where these wells exist. Solar panels, there can be an eyesore. A lot of landowners don't necessarily want an acre and a half of solar on their property. right? Um, and then you still have to deal with what happens at night and what happens when it's cloudy. So they have a place in the, in the market and the oil and gas industry is adopting them where it makes sense. Um, but I don't know that the technology has matured enough for that to become a, a primary source of energy uh, because you still have to have something to either back up when the sun's not shining or recharge that battery. And that's typically done with mm-hmm. a generator of sorts.
0: Yeah, I think you're in a a unique position. Like in Australia, we don't have as much gas uh, that we can sort of tap into. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it really needs to to figure out like how, like obviously everyone's trying to slowly move away from diesel. Sure. Um, But you're obviously in a very unique position where you can tap into that that natural gas,
1: which is very beneficial. Yeah, and I'm no, you know, gas engineer, I can't speak to the constituents in natural gas and how they are cleaner than the constituents in diesel. Um, Baseline invests very heavily in the the catalyst systems on our generators. Um, we upfit them beyond what the the engine manufacturer puts on them when they when they come off the assembly line. Um, and and we are compliant and do what I believe is our our social responsibility to ensure that our generators um, are operating within the specs that they're supposed to operate from an emissions standpoint in Colorado we we test weekly um, to to not only maintain our compliance with the regulations that exist up there but it's just the responsible thing to do and so if we have a unit that's out of compliance we either fix it or we swap it out um, and we put one that is performing within compliance and a lot of that's you know good maintenance practices to begin with and it's better to um, fix the problem before it causes a failure, but it's also our responsibility um, to be good stewards in the environmental space and do the right thing, even if nobody's watching and forcing us to.
0: Mm. All right. Well, let's learn a little bit more about Dan Cook. So we've learned a lot about baseline. So, what do you think has been the biggest challenge you've faced in your career so far?
1: Yeah, um, that was a, a that's a great question. Um, I would say my biggest challenge with myself has been, I see people for who I want them to be and I don't necessarily see them for who they really are. And to a certain degree, I think that can be a strength because it it speaks to my optimistic outlook and my inherent belief that people are good at the core, right, Um, but sometimes when I I don't balance that out with the reality of who people really are and who they can be, um, I get blind, I put blinders on and it causes, at times, me to, to assess a situation incorrectly or to know how to solve a problem with, with somebody, customer, a colleague, a coworker, whatever, um, with, with the wrong view of who they really are. Um, when I was at Sunbelt Rentals in 2015, I had a, a sales rep that was a few years older than me, um, and he was very wise with a lot of things that he shared. And one of the things he told me was any strength overused becomes a weakness. And so going back to your question about a challenge, it's learning how to not have a pessimistic outlook as it relates to people, situations, and overall life in business in general, and seeing people for who they really are and not for who I want them to be. And that's been tough to figure out the hard way. Um, And I'm getting better at it, but it's certainly something that I'm I'm continuing to work on. And it's also like, not trying to shape them
0: into the person that you want them to be as well. It's almost like with parenting, like you you want your son or daughter to play a certain sport and you're forcing sure. them down that route. In career, it's the same thing. Someone might not want to be a salesperson or a mechanic or whatever it is, but you think they've got that skill. You obviously
1: can guide them, but you can't force them. Yeah, and it's meeting people where they are and not expecting them to meet you where you are. Um, and that's a good example about um, wanting them to be a good mechanic. We may have great technicians um, that are really strong in their trade craft, and I might be looking for a service manager. Well, just because I need a service manager and I want that technician to be that service manager, that may not be what he wants to be. So I need to see him or her for who they truly are, which is a great technician, and that's their ambition, and not who I want them to be, which is that service manager. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's a, the service technician one is an interesting piece because I feel like a lot of times like service techs, they put themselves in a box where they think they have to work in service forever. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the CEO of Ahern Australia actually started as a service tech and then he worked his way through various positions and um, anyone that works in service, they understand the mechanics of, of the machines in so much detail that when they talk to customers, they build so much trust mm-hmm. and it's very easy for them to actually sell when they've got that trust. But they often don't, like they have their own blinders on and they think, oh, I'm not a salesperson. And that, that's a great example where I think a lot of service techs need to be like shown the ropes, like, hey, there's other things that you can do in your career. For sure. Um, because yeah, like obviously service techs is like a really hard thing to recruit for at the moment, like everyone's looking. Yep. But then at every other department, like it's always good to be, I try to move people around and, and, and Well, and, and
1: something I'm really proud of Baseline for doing um, is that we have, Off the top of my head, I can think of a handful of our sales team that didn't start out in sales and they had done just what you described and they were a technician and maybe they became a field service manager. And oftentimes our technician, our skilled workforce, they have a stronger relationship with the customer um, than our sales team does. And that's somewhat natural. They spend more time with the customer. They're solving problems. They're, They're interfacing with the customer through the life of that relationship. Um, and so by no means is it our sales team isn't doing their job, but our technicians just get to know the customers because they spend a lot more time in the trenches with them. And so I'm really proud that Baseline has created opportunities for top performing skilled trade talent to move away from that um, if they want to and go into a field like sales. So mm. that's a really cool thing that we've done for our team. What do they say? They say sales for sales the first and service sells the rest. <laughs> that's, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, and just this week, um, you know, we got feedback from a customer recognizing one of our technicians in West Texas for the level of attention to detail that he had with laying out the cable from the generator to the load, um, and that's something that we're all super proud of because it speaks to the technician's pride in his work and commitment to the excellence that we want to have. Um, and customers don't typically go out of their way to say you did a really good job. So when you do, when they when they do do that you've really impressed that customer. We're definitely the first to know when things aren't up to their expectations. So because we exceeded that expectation to such a large degree, the customer felt compelled to recognize mm-hmm. our technician in the work that he did. It was just, it's really rewarding to see that because um, our team takes a lot of pride in what they do and the customer senses that. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: And then you spoke about um, a mentor from mm-hmm. that sales that sales rep. Uh, who else do you think played a big influence in your career?
1: Um, there's been a lot of, of influences in my career over time. Um, the biggest one I would say is a guy named Nick DiPaolo. Um, he and I worked at Sunbelt together. Um, another one is Brant Williams. He was a sales manager for, um, the region I worked in when I was in Houston and we spent a lot of time working together, um, both with the sales team itself, as well as, um, uh, on certain things that we worked on together. Um, Cody Crawford is, is a good friend of mine and, um, He started out as a technician when I was in Baton Rouge. He was a technician for Sunbelt and Mobile, um, and I had an opportunity to um, get him on into the Baton Rouge Profit Center, and he came over as my service manager, Um, and over time, Cody and I have stayed close, and he's taught me a handful of lessons about how to solve some of the, the technical and some of the soft problems that we run into. Um, and another guy at Sunbelt named Jason Thompson, he gave me my first shot in, uh, in moving from sales into branch management or profit center management. Um, and I do remember the, uh, the conversation we had walking through our yard in Baton Rouge about taking that big step. And it's a big jump when you go from being a single contributor to managing a branch and leading a branch. Um, and a guy that I worked for in high school, uh, his name is Greg Bynum. He ran a uh, residential and commercial landscape and irrigation business. Um, he gave me my first real job and uh, he was actually in my wedding. I still keep in touch with him to this day. Um, he had a big impact on how I understood hard work, um, telling customers what you're going to do, delivering on those those expectations. And when you repair sprinklers, it's during the middle of the day. People aren't home. They're trusting you to go into their front yard and into their backyard, maybe even into their garage where the sprinkler controllers are. And so even though no one's looking, somebody's looking. And so you just got to do the right thing, solve the problem. You can fix it the wrong way or you can fix it the right way. The customer's probably not going to know the difference, so fix it the right way. So those five men have had a pretty big impact on just how I see the world, how I see my role on the team, um, and what I put my time and attention towards.
0: That's nice. And then so from uh, an
1: advice standpoint, if you could give advice to to young Dan, what what would you say? I would say don't define yourself by your job. Don't define yourself by um, what you're doing from a career standpoint. That's a big component of it, but have a well-rounded view of yourself um, and I don't believe in regrets but if I did and I could go back in time I would I would put more time and effort into working on cultivating relationships um, building stronger relationships with the, the, the people that I care about as well as cultivating new ones um, and focus on the people more and less on the results that you get from those people mm. Yeah, I think sometimes people underestimate the power of, of
0: networking and relationships, like what it actually means. Mm-hmm. Like Often some of the best CEOs uh, are people are people. people. Like sure. they, 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 there's an example, I can't remember what company it was, but it was a, a large organization in the UK that came on the podcast and he was having a bad day driving home from work and CEO was calling him and he thought it was just another thing that he wanted to do on the Friday night. And then he called just to say thank you. Like just stuff like that, like building rapport, building network, like that sort of thing that goes a long way. And when you do that with your customers, when you call like customers just to ask them, hey, how's the job site going? Just making sure not calling for something in particular. Yeah, I think it really builds that trust.
1: It's moving from a transactional relationship to, I don't know what the right word to compare transactional to, but you don't have a need for something specific. You're just being a good human. And that's that's a tough transition if you don't have the skill innately or you didn't learn that skill growing up to even recognize, am I viewing this person as a means to an end or am I viewing this person for the value that they bring just as that person? So if yeah. I could go back in time, I would probably do um, more time. I would put more time and attention towards the people uh, and less about the result. An interesting story maybe, um, I didn't put this in my notes, but um, – I spent a long time at Sunbelt. There's a lot of people I care about that still work there. And when I was in the downtown Dallas territory, um, part of my success in that territory was I didn't just rent the big pieces of equipment you can see from the highway. I rented the chipping hammers, um, the pressure washers, um, the gas cutoff saws, all the small tools. And at at one of the branches um, that that I worked at, we had a what's called a yard guy. He, was, he just worked the yard, um, and he always went out of his way to help me when I needed something. So a, a, a cutoff saw would quit working. So you don't send a service tech to a cutoff saw. You bring a new cutoff saw. And so I would call the store and i say, hey, I need another cutoff saw. This one quit working. I'm going to swap it out real quick. So I'd shoot back to the store 5, 10, 20 minutes away. I'd come in with the bad saw. I'd grab the good saw and this yard associate was always making sure that he got me something that I needed very quickly. So fast forward 15 years, um, I'm now at baseline, and I'm on the Dallas side of the Metroplex for whatever reason, which I hardly ever go over there, and I had 30 minutes to kill. So I drove over to that branch, and I went inside, and I said, hey, I'd like to see if this technician is still around, Um, and I knew he was, but I didn't know if he was at work that day. They said, yeah, sure, put on some safety glasses and go go back there. Um, And I walked in, and I didn't make it two steps out the door, and across the 40 feet of his service bay, he looks up and he says, Dan Cook, what in the world are you doing here? (laughs) And I got to spend 20 minutes with a guy that was so key to my ability to deliver that service excellence to the customer. Um, And 15 years ago, Dan may not have stopped back in to say hello, but today I felt it very... Felt very important. I felt it to be very important to go by and just tell him i have been thinking about you. And yeah. you were a big part of what I was able to accomplish 15 years ago, and I'm glad to see you're still doing your thing. Yeah, that's awesome. You should name drop him so he's on the podcast. <sighs> His name's Harold, yeah. and um, he's, a, he's a good dude. So um, it was really special for me. And that's what's interesting. When you're trying to do something for other people, Sometimes you could say it's almost self-serving because I went by for Harold and be able to catch up with him for 20 minutes, but it also was a huge uplift for me. It was a self-serving endeavor to go by and and say hello to him. So I walked out of there and I'm really glad that I went by and and spoke to him for 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah, that's awesome. So he's the only guy that's still at that branch um, to this day from my time when I've worked at that branch.
0: Yeah, awesome. So... In, in the big scheme of things, obviously, it sounds like your, your mindset has sort of shifted over the years. Like, how do you define success
1: today? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and there's a number of ways to define it. So, you know, in no particular order, I would say success is respecting yourself regardless of the outcome an LSU fan and um, there's a lot of LSU fans that don't particularly like Nick Saban and his departure from LSU and you know what he's doing at Alabama they're a great competitor um, great football organization Um, but Nick Saban doesn't really care about the outcome he focuses on the process and you run the play the same way over and over again and results become a distraction so not necessarily saying that um, I I exclusively subscribe to that but at the end of the At the end of the play, I wanna be able to respect myself for how I ran the process, not judge and measure myself by the results that it generated. Um, Learning something that I can pass on to others is another way to measure success. Helping people that I work with, people that are in my personal life, um, just be better versions of themselves. I'm fortunate at this point in my career to where I get to lead leaders. I don't necessarily have to lead frontline employees. Um, So I get to help those leaders grow into the best possible version of who they are, not necessarily focusing on the outcome of what they have to accomplish. I get to put my time and attention into them as individuals and as people um, and just help them become the best version of themselves so when they get to the outcome, they can have that same sense of respect for themselves. Um, And I truly believe that if you put your time and effort into the people, the the right outcomes just take care of themselves they may not happen at the timetable that you need them or want it to happen but in the long run if people are 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 cultivated um, and if people are given the opportunity to rise to the occasion they do and you get the results you're after Mm. yeah it's I think you gave the example just earlier around like
0: whether you're Every company's renting a scissor lift. It's all the the same type, whether it's Genie or JLG or Holo, right. whatever it is. Right. The, the difference is the service and the people behind it, yeah. and then what you what you brew within that organization and how you deliver that service. Like having a, what is it uptime of ninety nine point five percent is an unbelievable. Like, it really stat. is. Stat. Yeah. Uh, that almost seems like impossible. You know what I mean? Like that that type of level. So, uh, and and it all comes back down to the the people and what you brew. So. And that's why there's people out there that sell organizations and they can just map it again. Yep. They, they get the team back together and they can keep going. We were talking about Lottie just before. Yeah. That's a great example.
1: Yeah. And it's it's amazing when when people have a belief in themselves and in the process um, and the mission and the, the core values, they're going to make the right decision. They're going to do right by the customer, by themselves, by the organization. And my view is that leaders have the responsibility to make their problems, the 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 team's problems go away. My job is I report to the COO, but I work for the people that are on my team. I gotta make their jobs easier. I gotta solve problems that they either know they have and are not sure how to solve. They may not know that they have the problem, but my job is to make those problems go away so that they can do their job. Mm. Yeah, it's a form of leadership. Yeah. I'm, I I think it is. I think you're right. Um, But I view the guys that are on the team and are on the org chart that connect up to me. My work is to serve what they need, um, and it's proven to be successful over the years. Screwed it up a few times, I'm sure, um, and I learned from it, um, and I try to help those guys on my team, whether they're colleagues or or counterparts or they officially report up to me. Um, If I can help them along that journey, that's how I would define the success. Nice. And
0: so I believe you have four life rules mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Sure.
1: Um, there's actually a fifth one that I'm still working on, <laughs> so I'll go through them. Um, the first rule is being healthy is the slowest way to die. And that's going to mean something different to, a lot, to everybody as, as you hear it and you consume that. Um, but to me, it means ultimately we all end up in the same place. We all eventually come to our end and go meet our maker. Um, and so while i i I don't advocate treat yourself poorly, um, don't be so wrapped up in trying to be this uber healthy person and miss out on some experiences um, and take some risks that give you some experience or experience life as as best as uh, as you can. but rule number one is being healthy is the slowest way to die I'm no picture of fitness right um, But at the same time, um, you know, just enjoy. Enjoy the the barbecue. Yeah, enjoy it (laughs) Um, because you have the rest of your life to be old. That's very nice. Number one. Number two um, is the parachute just need not open. When it is my time um, to to die, I want it to just be lights out. Um, I don't want to have a slow and, and miserable decline. So when it's my time to go, standing on my two feet and the parachute just need not open and splat a little morbid but um you know the spirit of the rule is is there how do you control that button how do you control that situation you don't you don't have a choice in it you know um i could be hit by a bus on the way home today or um i could have a life-changing um medical condition i just prefer that the bus crashes into you yeah so number two Um, Number three is my last check should bounce. I want to enjoy the fruits of my labor um, and not be so wrapped up in saving for a rainy day that um, I don't get to enjoy the amount of time and work and effort it goes into becoming, you know, fiscally responsible. Now, I also subscribe to the Dave Ramsey School of Thought as it comes to money and debt and how to be fiscally responsible. Um, But it's incredibly freeing when you don't have the ball and chain of debt holding you down and you're not beholden to um, a lifestyle that makes it hard to decide to do things differently in your world. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I didn't, I didn't, um, you might say I didn't inherit anything from my parents yet. They're both still alive, but my financial independence as, as a middle-aged man um, and ability to take care of my family, it's not predicated on an inheritance. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to position my children and my legacy to not have to go through life um, because I'm going to leave them a bunch of money. Mm, Definitely. Number three. So number four um, is save your apologies for when they matter. And what I mean by that is I think human nature is to use a lot of weak language. Um, You know, it's important to be on time, for example. But when you show up and you're a few minutes late, don't apologize for being late. Say, thank you for your patience. It's a it's a mindset. Um, when you need something from somebody for a few minutes, don't say, hey, man, I just need a minute. Say, I need 10 minutes and be appropriately assertive and confident. Um, and so when you do need to apologize, you should apologize for what you've done, not how it made somebody else feel. So. If I, was, if I said something to you and it was offensive um, and I realized that and, it, and I'm remorseful about it, I don't apologize for making you feel the way you feel. I apologize for what I've said because apologies matter. Um, when you are needing to seek forgiveness, it needs to have some depth and it needs to mean something. And so if you're constantly apologizing, sorry I'm late, um, I'm sorry that you feel this way, It's insincere and it's not genuine. Does it actually mean anything? It doesn't mean anything. That's right. So apologize when it matters and make your apology about what you've done, not how somebody else feels about it. That's number four. And so you're working on a fifth one. Yeah, number five, five, um, I made a LinkedIn post, I don't know, five or six weeks ago with those four rules. And a former colleague of mine named Bo Bogardis made a comment on my post about um, kindness. And... Um, He didn't intend to challenge me to make a fifth rule necessarily, but I took that to heart Um, and I looked at what I think is uh, maybe the biggest challenge I've had in my career. Um, So this one's not fully baked, so subject to change. Um, But the fifth rule is treat people with kindness based on who you want them to be, but don't overlook who they really are. And to me, that means kindness is, is something that we just need more of. And so don't lose sight of who somebody really is but treat them for who you want them to be and give them that opportunity to be that person by how you treat them. Mm. It's almost like tied into that, what you were saying before about you sometimes
0: overthinking what someone might be. It's almost linked to that a little bit.
1: Yeah, it is. And and that one's a little long um, relative to the other four. So I'm trying to find a way to, to condense it to where it's, it's not so hard to remember or not so hard to understand. Um, and so... We'll see how it goes. And I'm not I'm not pushing that throttle really hard on developing that fifth one. It'll come to me in time if, it, if it's going to come together. But that's the, the four rules to live your life by plus a fifth one I'm working on. Very nice. All right, Dan, well, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Oh, it's an awesome conversation. And I'm really excited to have the opportunity to, to share thoughts and a little bit about myself and my career and, and what we're doing here at Baseline. Thanks for giving us the platform to speak about it.